Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Robert Irwin. Today, the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden opens Robert Irwin, All the Rules Will Change, a survey of Irwin's work that begins with his small abstract paintings of the late 1950s and continues through his acrylic columns of the early 1970s. The Hirshhorn exhibition also includes a site-conditioned installation, as Irwin calls them, that engages with the museum's Gordon Bunshaft design. It was curated by Evelyn Hankins and will be on view through September 5th. The exhibition's catalog, published by Delmonico Prestel, is a total winner. We'll have a link to it on manpodcast.com. In July, the Chinati Foundation in Marfa, Texas, will open a new permanent installation by Irwin. And in Beacon, New York, the Dia Art Foundation is showing Excursus, homage to the square cubed. It'll be on view through May 2017. Robert Irwin for the full hour after the break. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Noah Purifoy Junk Dada, on view January 30th through April 10th. Junk Dada is the first major museum retrospective of Purifoy's work in almost 20 years. Bringing his fascinating career into focus like never before, the exhibition features more than 50 of his vibrant works dating to the late 1950s to the early 2000s. Originally organized and curated by Franklin Sermons and Yael Lipschitz for the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, this is the exhibition's only stop outside of Los Angeles. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Suspended Animation, an exhibition of six emerging artists working with digital animation, is currently on view at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. By turns eerie, absurd, and entrancing, installations by Ed Atkins, Antoine Catala, Ian Chang, Josh Klein, Helen Martin, and Agnieszka Polska confront us with unsettling visions of our digital selves. Get more information at hershorn.si.edu and find out who lives in the uncanny valley. Getty 360. Surround yourself with inspiration. Whether you are looking for live music, experimental theater, intriguing talks, or unique art and food-themed courses, Getty 360 has you covered. Discover the multitude of public offerings at the Getty Center and Getty Villa at getty.edu slash 360, or download the free app. And we're back. Robert Irwin, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Before we get moving through the work in this show, the show here at the Hirshhorn, we're going to talk about the Chinati Project and a few other things, but... I want to start by talking about something you've done here in the museum's galleries. Each gallery of the, the Hirshhorn show, and of course it's installed around the, the donut hole here, each gallery wall floats. So you can walk around the show on the outside, you can walk around the show on the inside, and, and go through it any way you, you want, and each wall floats in, in space, and then there's a painting or a disc on, on, on one side or the other. I've lived in Washington for 20 years almost now. And I've never seen that installation here and talking to people at the museum. They've never seen a wall hung like that. And I understand it was your idea and it looks fantastic. And I wonder why you wanted to do it that way. Obviously, it's, you know, it makes more sense. But it also turns out to be interesting enough, I think, uh, a whole comment on the architecture and whole idea of making a round museum and having all curved walls. And the most obvious is that, for example, if you in the first, say, group of paintings, if you see them all at one time, you see in one thing the, the reduction. And this way, you get to see them one at a time, 
and then it slowly just, you know, comes out a, a different kind of experience. So you get to actually see each one, and then you realize that there's this thing is diminishing or whatever, is disappearing. And so that made good sense to me. Also, I just think it uh, moving through the space, it's a much, much nicer kind of way to do it. Uh, so it's very simple. That, And then, of course, uh, the move for the very last thing was incredibly obvious. I mean, just even on the drawing, you look at it. And then it, then it in a sense, throws back the whole dialogue about squaring the circle. But that, And then that wall, you know, that curved wall, now becomes real drama. I mean, that thing just really bows out there. So it seemed like, I mean, it worked out nice. I've seen the the line paintings and the dot paintings and the, the that early work in other shows and in other installations. Now that you mention it, I've never seen them installed in a way where you get to look at them one by one by one by one. Have you ever installed them that way before? I don't think I've ever actually had a, a chance to show them this way. I think this is the first opportunity, really. Uh, I had never even thought about it. Uh, I got, when I got here, I was not that very in- interested or excited about doing the show uh, because it was old old history, you know, not particularly interested in stumbling over that, oh, going through that. Um, but in, on my way out, I saw on the first level, the outdoors, you know, it stands on four legs in a way, and one of them is closed with the lobby, I looked up at the ceiling of that, and there are these, uh, I don't know whether it's just a, a decor or what, but there's just these lines that are apart, and then they come, come together, and then they go apart again, which is really the, the fun for me. Man, I had an idea for that immediately, and that's what I wanted to do. I was wanted to put a, a scrim on every one of those, which exactly how following the, what this thing is, this detail, put it all the way around so that the whole museum stood on this. If you turn a mushroom upside down, for example, you you see all those, you know, it's a, a fan like going. And uh, the idea of the whole thing standing on that fan, which is at night you see it, it's already lit for it. I wouldn't have had to do anything. That, of course, was not something they were had thought of doing at all. And so I... Uh, kind of went along, went along with the show, with the with the idea that I would I was going to make this thing happen. That, you know, it's a it's a this is the government and it's a bureaucracy. So they brought in a couple of uh, engineers to engineer this thing to make sure it's not going to tear the building down, and uh, that it's you know not crazy in some way. And these guys were they didn't have any idea what they were looking at. They looked at this material and it's, well, you know, they're trying to figure out what, how to, how to deal with it. And I explained to them this material has been made for like a hundred years, uh, generally in the south of France, near Lyon, uh, called Volet Tourial, which I saw. They use in museums to stretch on ceilings and they use them in shops to divide space and whatever. Apparently, there's a fairly big use for it. So, but. They couldn't figure out what to do with it. And they decided the only way that they could, which basically, a long time ago I quit using 
structural engineers. I started using aeronautic engineers because they're the only ones who really engineer. I mean, you know, they have to have to decide about the weight and the strength and this and that. And uh, the, there are real issues, which, you, can't, you know, you can't use the old book. And these guys kind of have an old book, and they just say it. So they decided to that they were going to have to deal with it as if they were sails, not porous, which, of course, is not true. But and then, the, then the issue became, well, what happens if we have a tornado, you know? We have a 250-mile-an-hour wind. So then they started trying to calculate, and they have these stones there which are oh maybe five by five and they're like eight inches thick and they're thinking well this thing this thing would maybe pull those stones right up off the ground yeah the absurdity of that so they went through all that that the machinations of that and uh, so i said you know let's just take and take a frame stretch some material on it which is one of the first things these guys here thought about doing and uh just point loaded, you know, put up 50 pounds, 60, 80, 100, 150 pounds, and then at one point, the staples all pulled out. So I said, there's your answer. There's your fail-safe. You don't have to worry about whether it's, uh, you know, what the, uh, what the velocity of the wind's going to be because it's going to come out and this stuff's just going to flap around and it's not going to do anything. But they actually could I don't know, couldn't get their heads around that. So they 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 said no, you can't do it, which was really a disappointment for me because it would it would have been good. I mean, it really I think it would. In fact, it was it was a no-brainer. But by that time, we were up to our uh, we were already deep into this. So uh, here we are, you know, uh, having a retrospective. Well, I'm glad you brought up the paintings. So let's let's begin to go go through the different bodies of work. The first paintings in the show date to 58 and 59. They're rooted in abstract expressionism, but they're they're small, a little bit smaller than one foot square. You know, of course, Ab- Abex paintings at the time tended to be enormous and macho and, and all of the things that we rightly obse- uh, associate with Abex. The story behind how you came to make small paintings is that you were sharing a studio with Craig Kaufman and you were, you know, being a big, brushy, angsty, macho abexer on one side of the room. And, well, what was Craig Kaufman doing on the other side of the room? And why or how did you happen to notice what he was up to? Well, of course, we're in the same room. Actually, it, the story goes back a little bit further. I had a, I had a show at a place called Felix Landau, which was a, a big... The big gallery at the time. I, all that's a little vague after all these years, but I'd put the show up, but I, I, I do remember that, and I remember coming in and having my first, what you'd call epiphany, and that was to say, suddenly realize, 10 minutes before the door opened, that these things are fucking bad. I mean, you know, that, that that's, that's a shock. It's like, uh, you know, it's uh, whatever you're doing, however your head is, what fantasies you're having, what all the things that you think you're doing and what have you, uh, you get a good look at it, and bang, there it is, and it is bad. And then the doors open, and your friends come in and say, great, you know, and which for what friends for, I guess. And uh, and I all along, I mean, like, you know, you, re- you don't realize, I mean, I guess some people do, that, that an exhibit is like being naked. I mean, anybody who 
who knows or has a good eye, you know, you're there, you know, to be examined and uh, to, to realize that it's, I mean, really bad. I mean, not a kind of bad, not, I mean, just bad uh, is, it's a shock. And Craig Kaufman had to be, he's the one, he was a funny guy, very smart, maybe the best artist of that whole Ferris group in the beginning. I would say probably he, he was. Anyway, going back to my thing, is Craig looked at the painting and he pulled his nose. He had a way of pulling his nose like And he said, you got to be kidding. I mean, it's like, oh, shit. It's like, you know, I mean, I know that he knew something that I didn't know. And they, the Ferris guys, other than Moses, they were all younger than I was. And, but I, I just started associating myself. I mean, uh, they became my second education in a way. So I tried being an abstract expressionist painter because I admired what they were doing, de Kooning the most of all, and I was trying to paint like de Kooning. I realized just how, how good he really was, you know, and uh, that I, I could never quite, I could never, not quite, I could never get to that level. And then I suddenly realized that the, it's all, all uh, without, without any content or intelligence or whatever. And I'm realizing again how bad I was. I mean, I'm, I'm not being nice here. I mean, I was, I was, I had a, I had a magic wrist, which made me think I could be at ours. But uh, my naivete was uh, overwhelming. One of the reason, one of my first sort of simple thing was, well, I was painting these large paintings because. Once the figure was in there, Scale had become a free agent for the first time. You know, so Scale, had, a lot of people were really exercising it. I realized that they were out of control. There was just too many things in there that were out here recording the happy accident. I mean, the worst thing, you know, the kind of things that bad painters do, hoping that something will happen and, you know, what have you. I don't know how, I, it's been a long time ago, but I guess it was like a discipline. I, Said, I'm going to take it down to a size where I'm actually doing every single thing. And I, you know, I, in other words, there's no happy accidents. And this is, this is all, uh, uh, you're responsible for it all. And so that was, that was a big step. And uh, I had also had really a very interesting experience. I had a, there was another guy in the, a third guy in another studio. I can't remember his name. He was, he was worse painter than I was. But, uh, we shared the studio, and uh, he was, the guy was crazy. He'd been in the Army, and he, in, in the process of being in the Army, he had, he had all the desire to be an artist, and so he had a, a certain level of sophistication, and he he collected a half a dozen Raku bowls, Raku ware, which are unbelievable, you know, treasures. Now, no one, no one ever, I mean, they're national treasures in Japan, Nobody, they don't sell them or anything. And, uh, but he, one day, asked me over to dinner. So I went over to dinner to his house, and uh, he set out two cans of Campbell's soup, pork, and beans, and a couple, two spoons, and we had, we had dinner. Took the lid, that was, that was dinner. And then afterwards, he set a box uh, on the table, and done up very simple with a, with a ribbon, and the way the Japanese do, you know, they have that wonderful sense of uh, pre presentation about things. And uh, so you untie, you untie the box, 
and you take the lid off, and inside there is a, a small soft bag, and you take it out, and it has drawstrings, and you open the drawstrings, and you reach in, and you take out this rock ball. The beauty of they've taken you, you know, going from the scale, but they just showed this whole thing of you brought it all the way down so that you could appreciate a thumb mark. And you, so the whole process of coming to it and and uh, it was a was a great education. I mean, it was obviously uh, spectacular. So coming back to see him now, I mean, I like them. They're they're nice paintings. So those foot by one foot paintings. Your original idea was that they be handheld, that the visitor pick them up, hold them, yada yada yada. That came from the Raku experience or did that come from somewhere else i think it came from the raku experience i mean there was there was a genuineness because the thing of scales i mentioned but you genuinely really started to realize the importance of scale and the uh, how one looks at how one in a sense approaches the opening of the thing the back i say brought you down to where the slightest mark had had a kind of meaning of its own that's a major thing to find out to know that I don't think very many people have ever had the opportunity to go through that and uh, I, I didn't, it wasn't a matter of being, me being smarter it was a matter of actually me being dumber in a way and, and just finding these things uh, one at a time as it were and because uh, I'd really committed myself to sort of begin at the beginning as it were when I made those little ones and using that experience as, as a kind of ground for the, for the why. So from these smaller handheld paintings, you went on to make bigger paintings, paintings such as an untitled painting that's now at the MCA San Diego, and paintings titled Ocean Park, Pier 1, and Pier 2. Those are the four that are in the show. We'll have images on manpodcast.com, and there is a fifth. I mean, there, there, there are five of, of, of this next phase of paintings in total. So these are paintings which, in hindsight, feel very much like your final way out of abex and out of expressionist painting and very much the beginning of your interest in in lines individual lines beginning to do things with individual lines that get toward perception is that how you can i mean do you consider them that way as kind of the beginning of of an embrace of individual lines or no uh, you know that, I, i'm sure that comes up when you look at them now in retrospective but at the time I started to engage the thing of scale again. And so the first thing I did was to just examine the the fact that we look at a painting and there's a sort of, at what distance do we look at paintings, you know, having to do with the kind of paintings, the kind of detail. And that. So I just painted a square on the wall. And and for a long enough, for, for a reasonable amount of time, moved that square back and forth in terms of scale, size, and configuration. The idea that you move it just slightly, okay, what happens? You know, and it does. There's an energy, and the thing begins to take a little bit more of a dynamic. Or there's a point where it becomes about the dynamic, and and it's not neutral enough to, you know, to to work with it. Dictates already certain kinds of approach, certain kind of material, certain kind of gesture, and what have you. So, you know, this is all done very slow. I mean, I'm not being coy, but I was I was dumb. I mean. So I was doing it step by step and uh, examining every part of it. 
I never, I was never, I guess it may becomes kind of somewhat of an intellectual inquiry of sort, although I don't think of myself as an intellect. Uh, I, I, so anyway, I established a kind of scale for myself. And uh, in the beginning, they were not abstract expressionist things. They weren't wild and gestural, but, and they were not really much, well, not necessarily about lines per se, in the beginning, not least in my mind. But I, I you know, they're, they're paintings now in which I was trying to create relationships and tensions and, and physicality about them that had, a, had an authenticity and that it had some, you know, that it wasn't about picture making, it was about a physical developing a kind of all these things made sense in, a, in what we call a pictorial world. So uh, as you notice, they get sparser and sparser and uh, that's really a matter of being maybe more effective. You know, in other words, I was able to do more with less, but also eliminating all as much all all kind any kind of referential. In other words, you're not they're not in any way pictures, uh, even in the most general sense. And so, and the names are just bland. I mean, that Pier One I was on, I was at the at, by the beach by the pier and Pier One. Uh, you know, uh, there was a uh, uh, there was a bar around the corner called the Lucky You, and there, that we went to. And there's uh, so it was you know that kind of just it, that was just not an issue, I and mean, that was a way of dealing with it, not as an issue. So the me the titles don't mean anything; just just a way of keeping track, you know. And then at a at a one point, I I was I took a trip. I'd gone back to Europe actually with Billy Albankston. And we were, we were there maybe a week, and all of a sudden I realized that uh, a lot of what was going on in those paintings was not necessary in the sense that the line, just the line, was the one thing that you can't, you, I mean, you really can't uh, turn it into a pictorial of any kind. You can't read any, I mean, everything, all these still could one read stuff into it. And the straight line, in the middle of the line curves, it starts having... The ability to be read as you know a wave or a this or that, the straight line is just a straight line. It's neutral. I mean, it has none of that. And so I painted the straight line paintings because uh, it put me in another realm, another way of looking at things, in which there was no more any kind of attempt to in any way whatsoever have a pictorial or a narrative or any of that kind of information at all. But another thing happened, which is I would paint these lines, and I had a way of moving them up and down, but just by putting tape on there and holding it, just tack it and then move it. And I'd look at it for an hour, two hours, and I'd go to sleep, you know. And it's hard to explain to some people to say, well, maybe it's a little over-romantic, but Wittgenstein... Uh, at one time built a house for his sister, this I read later, in Vienna. And uh, he designed the whole thing, and he had made a rather l- elaborate r- roof or ceiling for the for the living room. And he took one look at it, supposedly, and said it's two centimeters too low. He tore it out and put it in again. And basically, that's what I learned. It, I, it, my eye had be, you know, your eye gets to a point your ability to look and to discern that two centimeters is too low. That's a kind of, that actually is a kind of, that's maybe as sophisticated as 
I ever got, really, in a way, that have, doing those things, I, I trained my eyes, every, which I use all the time. It's what, it's what makes an artist an artist, uh, and what an aesthetic comes from, uh, that kind of refining of, of your senses. I say that now afterwards. At the time, I, I couldn't have told you what, why I was doing it. That's interesting because in, in, in with the hindsight of 50, whatever it is, 60 years of history, it's easy to kind of reduce a moment to a couple of sentences. And so that moment could be reduced to abstract expressionist painting was substantially about gesture, and your way out of gesture was to focus on line. Did you realize that at the time, that that was a way out? I, I, I can't claim being sophisticated anywhere along this. Other than at the end of this, I have an eye. And that what artists, the real role in a way which starts to come into my mind is that artists, in a sense, that it's that sensibility. Like the, one of the things that colored a little bit of teaching that I did at the time is I, I just assumed everybody has a sensibility. But artists, some people have a little more, they're more aware of that sensibility and it's more active for them. And they they'll come as a student and what you're mostly doing is what most people do in a school is teach them art. You come to painting or baseball. But, but basically what I'd, the conclusion I'd come is that what you really do is nurse that sensibility. And it'll turn out ways you have no idea. So you have a, I had like Ed Rocher on one end and, and Chris Burden say on the other end. It's obvious I didn't teach him. You know, you didn't, I didn't even know, in fact, in the case of Chris Burden, when he first came, I had to, the, my biggest concern was, is this guy crazy? You know, is he, a, I mean, is he dangerous? You know, because you got other students. I mean, he would do, he would do something like, they had a, they, the 12 graduate students, they had their own gallery, and each one took uh, a month and did their own show. And for his show, he built a small pool of water, and then he put five ladders in there, and they had, coaxed people at the, at the opening to get up on the ladders and then he threw a 220 volt line in the water now I had to know I had to know that somebody turned that thing off <laughs> somebody in the back you know I had to know that the, the school was alarmed I mean they were they were and they didn't want to graduate him I finally had to you know really go to bat for him in the sense of the no he's not man this everything he did was very carefully thought out. Everything was, there was no maybe. If you had him shot, it was to figure out exactly the, the least, you know, and the, shooting where the least amount of damage might be, and then to rehearse. There was just nothing. There was the same kind of thing that the line, doing the lines were for me. I mean, everything was, you know. And so and that, that experience, also even in the teaching, was, uh, I mean, you have Larry Bell, and then you have Via uh, Selmans. I mean, just two entirely different people. I mean, and and you don't corrupt them. I have a teaching question I want to ask later, but but while we're still on lines, as you mentioned a, a few minutes ago, you began the line paintings by painting a series of gray rectangles on your studio wall. They're marvelous, Marvin Silver pictures of this in the catalog, and you were studying your perceptual awareness of that form on the wall and you got to the point where you decided that the paintings should be 65 inches wide and 66 inches tall one inch off square 
and in the subsequent later line paintings, you went to 83 inches and 84 inches. What about that inch worked for you, and how did you, I mean, obviously by standing there and staring at it, but what was, what was it that led you to believe that that was the answer, that one inch, that that one inch was? We're going way back, but my memory of the thing is that basically the, 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 the shape had no set up no demands or no expectations, making it almost square, but making it almost not slightly square, that it, there was the thing was already energy. Another thing that I did, which this was me coming out of my naivete, the stretcher bars, now I'm not, I wasn't, no big deal, but I made the stretcher bars and they had slanted on, on the bar, was slanted so, and the, and the crossbars set back so that, that you stretch the whole thing and you you know you do it, and then you actually it like it's like a drum, and so that working on it there was there was a real tactility and a real physicality, very subtle, but that this was this is a piece and a part of the overall picture. The slightly one inch gives it more energy, et cetera, the optimum distance for the scale and all not a question of right or wrong, a question of that that was at least my best. The guess uh, as to how these things function, being neutral but not at the same time. And I started, I started doing writing at that. Some writing. I started doing some reading. I never read a book really uh, as a kid. I was having too much fun, but I started reading philosophy and uh, starting to, in a sense, uh, begin to write, which was the most difficult thing I, for me. Really, a stretch, like a fielder going from left field to catch a ball and right. It was not, I, I, but I caught the ball, but it was not graceful. It was hard. Uh, again, a discipline. I had, uh, you know, I had no discipline. And so I had to parse out each of these problems and deal with them. I read ferociously. Uh, the books are hilarious. They've still got so many write, so much writing in the, on the edges and on the, in the middle of it, you can't even already read them if you look at the book now. And I wasn't thinking in any way that I was an intellectual or, or, or that I was being philosophic. But I was starting to try to address what all these issues were that were being raised. Like I go with the thing of Wittgenstein as, a, as, a, as an example. And I started having these funny ideas about why art, you know. I mean, what, what exactly is the role of, of art and artist? In the simplest sense, first of all, I broke it down. There's two kinds of knowing the sentient being and the cognitive self. And I can reason, but I cannot logic. I mean, reason comes from a, a different kind of activity, and it comes from me essentially working or working at my own pace, my own life. I don't, I don't have the right words for it. But, and I still realized that, 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 that the, the, for me, the strength of being an artist and what artists do ultimately is they don't make paintings, they don't make pictures, they don't necessarily, they can do those things. But and I became aware of the history of modern art, which is a radical fucking history. You, uh, I, I've done this as a lecture a million times, so, but it's the easiest way to, to explain it is that you start with David, which is a brilliant example of pictorial logic. Not a great painting necessarily, but a great and incredible, you know. And then in a hundred years, all these people they took this thing completely apart, and the question becomes really obvious: Why? 
I mean, why in the world will we take something so beautiful and so full of you know richness and 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 it has a function, whatever? Why would you take it all away? You know, just just get, take it apart. That's the problem with the art world right now is they're not aware of their own history, and that's that's a real problem because the history is you know it's like an arrow. So the arrow is what 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 you know what does the artist do? How does he function? Where are we in the world? It's not about making things and objects necessarily it's about like Wittgenstein's eye somebody really can look at things and really attend them so the idea that that our architects are, are not educated as artists they start out with the idea of design they you know they use design design is already in a sense a, a, a quantitative way of taking all these aesthetics and making it like a, a color wheel and and uh, different proportions and all that sort of, as a kind of slightly scientific or, uh, as they say, quantitative. Uh, the whole history of modern art is, is, is essentially put in the idea that there's another kind of knowing. And it's, it, it's not an accidental one. It has to have the kind of discipline that I've sort of been going through. That, but at the same time, you are a trained esthetician, as it were. And that, uh, therefore, and in a sense, ultimately, an artist. It, it was Ren Wixer came to me one time and wanted to know, wanted me to do a talk at. at he used to do these fairs in Chicago, there, uh, where they'd bring in experts and what have you, and have a, spend a week and have a conference on whatever subject he came up with. And so his thing was ecology that one, and I was too busy, and I said I can't make it. And he said, Do you, you're not interested in ecology? I said, for Christ's sake, what the hell do you think I've been doing all my life? <laughs> you know, I mean, ecology is first an aesthetic problem. I mean, if we really love, I mean, if it really is, if we really truly love it, when we put it high up in our, our decision, I mean, we're not going to do, you know, uh, economics and the politics and the whole thing, those all are processes of how we, in a sense, enact it in the world but the first thing is wanting to needing to really in a sense in a critical sense like that two centimeters counts and that all these things count so that when you start thinking it that way that being an artist is really an, an incredible opportunity as it were to to work in the world in reading other interviews you've done over many decades, everybody talks and asks you about these perceptual issues with the line paintings. Nobody asks you about the color and how you got to these colors. I guess the color is where and why. Trial and error. The first thing you do, like I said, about stretching the canvas, and then I would uh, put a white ground on it. And I actually, when I, when I got to the dots, which is the next step, but. I realized that if, if, if you painted, if you did something like that, uh, at some point in the world, that white ground is going to turn yellow. But, I forget what, the, it's the most common one, but it, it, if you put it in sunlight, it turns white again. And I found a, a really, uh, the, apparently there's uh, Lucien Lafitte Fournay in France, uh, who made paint for famous painters and that, but they apparently had the, the purest white in the world they I, I've never seen them make it but it was apparently all done they were it was all the ingredients were mixed in the air like being fired out of a cannon and that the best stuff at the end uh, became this Lucien Lafitte Fournay white and so I painted the canvas with that with the idea that it, at some point in time 
when the canvas shells or the, or the colors start to uh, fade or whatever, that they you could set it in the in the sun or in ultraviolet light, and it would come it would go back to white again, because you never would want to try and paint around, you know. But it was that it's that, that's just a sample of how, I mean, what what the process had become in my head, and then of course the colors. I bought almost all my reds from English makers, all my earth colors from a Dutch company that made them, uh, I can't remember the name now, and and uh, blues and that from different, but I sourced all the, all the best makers of color, and their color with the most pigment to it, uh, and uh, would last the longest and what have you, because these things would were become a little precarious to repair or what have you. I'm not even sure whether people do it or what they do, but so the color, as it were, starts at where it starts. It starts there, and then the blue on this on the painting you're looking at there is is come to almost the same way that the scale was come to. You try, you try this, you try that. It's all it's all trial and error, you know. I mean, you may be maybe a little less trial and error uh, as you get better at it. But then you have to say to yourself, I don't know if I can trust that yet. So for a long while, you continue to exercise it that way. The colors are arrived at in terms that they actually, I think the only word you can use is the closest is has to do, there's an energy exchange between the surface and between the line. The painting I turned to is Crazy Auto from, from 1962. It has three light blue lines, and then above them is a darker blue or almost slatish colored line. So were you using these colors out of the tube or were you mixing and changing and testing throughout? Ultimately they they tend to mix. I mean you mix them but you could use them out of, right out of the tube and I'm not sure whether maybe I, I did it one time or another but probably not on these because I don't think it would have quite the nuance that these that these colors have. So sequentially the next thing you do are the dot paintings and I want to read a, a quote from your Archives of American Art Oral History with Matthew Sims, because I don't think we can do much better than that in terms of kind of how you got started on them. But I do have a couple of kind of specific questions that come from this quote. So here's what you, what you said in 2013 about the dot paintings. What I did was I put small dots on the surface, starting in the middle with full color, using the best paint you can get so that it has as much tooth as it can. Um, as you can have, and it's not going to disappear for the lack of pigment in five years or 20 years or something. And I put the dot, real simple, I put the dot on, and then I put a green dot, optically corrected green dot, between every one of red so that they were perfectly on spectrum. They canceled each other out. And then you kind of de de described how you avoided patterns and such in, in the dot painting so that they, they were just kind of a full all-over field. So... First up, has the intensity of the color held up the way you thought and hoped it would? I'm going to get. I'm getting a look at that right now, because I haven't seen most of these paintings, you know, for a good period of time. They appear to have held up reasonably well. Uh, I say that because they're optically rather difficult to look at. What you're really looking at is energy. That more and more energy was becoming why I was moving away from any kind of formal painting. Because uh, and energy really was that, that, that that's how the eye uh, functions. That's it's it's an uh, it equates all this all this information, but it's also an energy exchange that's going on. Not without getting technical, because I'm not technical, but you just realize that this is a 
and that's one of the reasons why I scored photography was that photography was, you know, that's the one thing it lacks, basically, is energy. It's a, a kind of dead record of, of something that was alive and had, had existed on, in another realm, really, in terms of sight. And then when you start reducing everything down here, you, this becomes, you really, is the, you're dealing with the essentials now of what the whole process, the perceptual process is. You, you train yourself without necessarily knowing it uh, that certain, you know, certain things were necessary, certain relationships and all that can, you know, that function better than others and what have you. What I was trying to do here, I, first I shaped the canvas. And the reason for the shape, to shape it enough so that it had an energy to it, but not enough so that you really were thinking about it as a shape canvas. And that was is somewhat difficult because if you bend a thing and hold it at one end and the other end, uh, and it's bent enough, it will, you know, it will hold. But if you bend it just slightly, you have to realize you have to hold, hold it at every every point. So this is, I went through this whole thing of building. All these things were led to, they were doing them, but they were educational. You know, they were, I was learning how to process things, finding a wood that was on the corner that could be sanded both directions, which is called jellyatong, that is, you know, has no grain really. So it, you, you, you can really subtle nuance how the corners were, and then setting it out from the wall enough so that you, you realize that the, the idea of a of a frame. What I was really pushing hard on here is the idea of the, of the magic square. You know that it was a magic, and so you put a frame around it, or you could put it on a velvet wall, or whatever. But there was a whole idea that this was like a a, a, a space separate from and inclusive and that a mark in a sense now had a meaning and that all these meanings are added up into a picture but at the same time you, as in this, this, this history of modern art is reversing the whole thing so this thing basically just had a presence had an energy an exchange that you could have so everything was predicated on, on that uh, these paintings were about trying to have it as close to pure energy as I could at that time. I mean, that's, there was nothing else, no other, no other meaning for it or, or rhyme or reason. Well, well, speaking of energy, my reaction to them whenever I've seen them is that I cannot hold still in front of them. They make me as a viewer move. Either I'm moving toward them or I'm moving away from them, but I can't hold still and look at them for more than a second or two. Was that, and you're nodding, was that part of the idea or did that just, did you just discover that people reacted that way once they started getting to see them? People were never a part of the equation. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm people. Yeah. And so if it's starting to make sense to me and I'm getting it so it gets up on that edge, you know, where it really, where, where it's happening in a way, uh, then I figured that everybody else is going to have to, uh, they're going to have to do the dance that I did. My guest is Robert Irwin. We'll be right back after a break. Blaffer Art Museum is the exclusive North American venue for Mirrors for Princes, an evolving five-city exhibition of installations and sculpture by the art collective Slavs and Tatars. The show takes its title and conceptual framework from a medieval genre of advice literature for rulers that offered instructions, aphorisms, and reflections on how to rule a nation. 
See Slavs and Tatars, Mirrors for Princes, free January 16th through March 19th at Blaffer. More at blafferartmuseum.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College, the first comprehensive museum exhibition in the United States to examine the renowned experimental college. Leap Before You Look features more than 200 objects and 90 artists, including Annie and Joseph Albers, John Cage, Merce Cunningham, Ruth Asawa, Robert Rauschenberg, Elaine and Willem de Kooning, Susan Weil, and Cy Twombly. Delve into the history and influence of Black Mountain College with in-gallery performances and more than two dozen public programs, all free and open to the public. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Leap before you look, on view through May 15th at the Hammer Museum. Free for good. And now back to my conversation with Robert Irwin. So somewhere in here, and I'm not exactly sure when, even though I've looked for dates, you go to Spain, to the island of Ibiza. I've read the Ibiza story a bunch of times. It, it, you, you go to Ibiza, you, you had an experience with absinthe that freaked you out, and you, you left the party part of Ibiza and rented a house uh, very inexpensively for eight months on St. Anthony Bay. So I, I, there's a real romance to that. There's kind of a St. Jerome hermit myth. The artist goes into the wilderness and comes back with ideas element to it. It's very romantic. At the risk of, of dashing romance against the rocks, what the hell did you do for eight months? Basically, I, I, for eight months, in a way, I kind of brought myself up to what we've been talking about in the paintings and that. I spent every day just walking. And, and I'd started doing that in Paris, actually, Again, I just had been in the army, and uh, you know, it's a, I'm, we have to, to really it's just a dumb kid. And I started, but I had gotten this habit of walking in Paris at night. Uh, I'd put a couple of bottles of beer in my pockets and big coat, and I'd walk all night. And it was so incredibly beautiful, you know, so uh, rich. It was like I'm bringing it to tears in a way. It was that rich an experience for me. And um, that was when I realized that I. I couldn't be an artist in Europe because I wouldn't change anything. You know, L.A., what was great about L.A. is everybody said, oh, L.A., especially in Oregon, L.A. is, in, is nowhere, no architecture, no, you know, no sophistication, blah, blah, blah. And they were probably right. That's exactly why it was a pretty good place to be at, at that moment in time. On Ibiza, I carried that whole thing even further. Uh, I, I didn't carry, I didn't actually have a, I, I didn't speak Spanish, didn't learn, didn't try just walked all day and thought about the stuff. And I, this may sound corny or unreal, but I actually started feeling like I actually had my, my, my own mind in my hands in a way and starting to feel that I, I'm beginning to understand my biases and my uh, 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 things that intrigued me and my sense of, of, of how things felt and how things, it just, it's like after you know, it, you, you. If you're there long enough, it's like pulling plugs out of an old, uh, you know, in a telephone board. You pull them out, and just one at a time. Normally, you pick up a book. No, normally you go. You, you plug. You plug it in. So this whole thing was like this process. None of this in, intellectually. I'm just doing it. You know, somehow I don't just pulling these plugs out. Then at a certain point, it, you have this. 
you have this feeling that essentially you have your own mind in, you. in, in other words uh, why do I feel this why do I think what am I responding to what do, you know why do I handle information why did I interpret this or that this way or that way you know it's it's hard to explain but the isolation and slowly unplugging yourself not not the reading book not turning the radio on not turning the TV uh, that spending that time with yourself was uh, that was at the base of all this whereas that came before all of this uh, uh, whatever that is is what I was working out here in these paintings. Well, that's a good transition to the discs, I think, because it seems to me that one of the things that the dot paintings and the discs have in common is that they both have ed edges to the artworks because the laws of physics and materiality require it. There has to be, you know, as long as you have an object that's on a wall, there has to be an end to the object. Otherwise, it just goes in infinity around the planet, right? So did that physical materiality necessity of a stopping point, of an edge, come to frustrate you? Was there a tension? Because when you look at one of the discs and let your eyes glaze over, everything just dissolves into kind of magic. Was, was, was eliminating those edges motivating? It's the most crucial step of the whole thing, breaking the magic, the magic square. Essentially not, in a sense, looking at the world objectivizing things, fo putting them in focus in a way. It's not about being out of focus, but, you know, I, the, when I first noticed, really, I painted the, on, the, on, the, on the dot paintings. For the first time, I got to sing, which is the middle part is there, but it's not. I, s I saw the shadow. And I was, for the first time in my life, you know, then I that was a really crucial one because Mondrian had taken it all the way up to pure energy in a way, uh, but then he went was still a painter because he didn't he didn't take the exercise of breaking the edge, the frame, which is ultimately the the, the, the bottom line of two ways of knowing and two ways of going as it were, and so that quantitatively, the the the, the shadow has no meaning has you can't do anything with it has you know quantitatively it doesn't really exist, and so you can ignore it i.e., you can put a frame around it. It becomes, but at the same time, if you look at the thing visually, it's full of energy. It's all kind, you know, in other words, it's not a nothing. In fact, you realize you can't, we couldn't move in the world without it. Shadows are a crucial piece of the whole, you know, the whole process of actually organizing information in the world. So for me, that was like a break, the real breaking point, where one side is one way of, of in a sense, dealing with this phenomena and the other side of dealing with the phenomena they're both true but they become two ways of looking you know and uh, they it that it immediately changes all the rules of the game so breaking the frame was was the most crucial act of I mean, this whole thing that's the culmination of this this exercise that i went through so holding in our minds that idea of the edges dissolving and, and the importance of that the way I understand it, you didn't so much as intentionally decide to give up the walls. It's once you'd made that magic happen, you didn't need the walls anymore. Am I getting that about right? Yeah, it, it's, 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 it's not about walls or not walls. So the, the, these, these fluorescent tube pieces, there's one that's been at LACMA for a long time. The Met has had one installed for an extended period recently, the Albright Knox, Niagara. It strikes me that there are no hard edges in, in that work either, that, that, that the edges of those 
dissolve too, but in a different way. Was that a factor in deciding to go back to the wall and play with fluorescent tubes and gels that way? Or, or am I dealing with 45-year-old ideas that you were long since done with? Since done with is the answer. But, uh, and maybe even, maybe even in terms of somebody's history, that may be a fuck-up uh, because they bring all the, the possibility of the loaded. Uh, actually, what happened was, in the simplest way, I kind of discovered fluorescence for the first time because when you put them on the wall and you hide the wires and all that, uh, they're pretty pretty neutral. They're about the most neutral light. You, you, most light bulbs have, have a fixture always uh, associated to it and some kind of mechanism, what have you. So I, I just filed that thing of fluorescence being, and then I found a very funny thing that nobody could make Apparently, nobody could make a, a pure daylight because one guy, a funny guy, apparently in Chicago, had the patent on it. So everybody had to make their, in a sense, they had other colors, but they had to be just one, one degree off one way or the other, which I thought was really kind of fascinating. So I'd always sort of kind of filed that. And at one point, I, I did it, accidentally did it, a couple of things with fluorescence and realize that there's two kinds of light that are happening which is not happening in anything else and that is that there's in the fluorescent is there's light being emitted but also the potential there's light being refracted so for example in the green painting where you have the red paint we have to have the green in there uh, I would on those tubes uh, let's say make a good red rich red and then on the very last, I put a, a green gel, which modest didn't change the red really that, but you, you, you would see green right next to or associated to red. Pretty interesting, you know, pretty pretty fascinating. So I I found a, a whole world of color that no one else has no one else has ever exercised, and so I I did it for a while. Uh, I liked it. I enjoyed it. it was re I made some. I made some of the best. I mean, uh, colors. The only where you see them maybe would be in a tapestry, or in in some other uh, worldly way. But I, I actually can tease out those colors. So I, I did it for a while. But in a in a sense, actually, it was. If you wanted to lay your career out in a nice chronological order, it was a mistake. Because it brings me up all the questions. That, that you're, I went back to, you know, no, I didn't go back to. <laughs> I just found a, uh, whatever it was, like a game that was really in a world that I have played and which no one else has actually played it uh, with all the possible variations. And it was fun. You know, while, while we're talking about the, these fluorescent wall pieces, I think the first one was in 2007, the one at the MCA San Diego all the white tubes yeah I am probably going to get in huge trouble for this question but that's okay I wonder if that piece is related to either of two things one the dot paintings because when you stand when I stood in front of that wall in San Diego there was a I mean it covered the whole damn wall and it just kept going and and there was a certain kind of disorientation and then the second thing I wonder if it's related to, and this is the one that's going to get me in trouble, 
hatchings in Cezanne or Jasper Johns? No. No, there's, there's no, you know, it, I don't think the world, work, um, at least my world, doesn't work that way, you know. It, it grew out of itself. That's how, I, by the way, how, why I got back to the fluorescence. They wanted me to do a, a, a show. I mean, I live in San Diego. So I, all of a sudden, you know, they had just taken over the railroad station, the baggage train. Man, I had some big spaces all of a sudden that I had to, yeah, I had to deal with all these. And but what am I going to put in all these things? So they gave me a little room, which was the first studio I'd had. And so I started to come up with that, the idea of maybe doing that, uh, the light on the wall thing. And it came down to what you actually finally saw, except very funny in a way, in that little room, none of the things that were interesting actually were there until I actually got it on the big wall. One of the things was that actually when you start looking at it over a period of time, that the shadows are the most dominant thing. They actually over overpower, yeah, they just flip it over back. You think you're looking at light, and then pretty soon it's all these shadows, you know. But finally, they really, when you look at them for a little while, it's just the shadows. The lights are not are not the thing. They're this, this funny reversal of form, you know. And, and, and so that's how I got in. And then I saw the fluorescence, and then I started seeing the because I tried some color and stuff, obviously is a possibility, and then I started seeing these things, the phenomenon I was talking about, and saying, "My God, here, here's a medium that nobody has really exercised." I mean, Flavin had in a way, but he more more design. In other words, he made him a, a good cut in the wall, or you know, he kept them simple, and and the colors were essentially strong and but singular as such but other than other than that uh yes no game nobody nobody played the game and like i say though it was in a way it was a total regression i mean i was actually it was fun it had a whole new thing but in terms of everything we've been doing here it was a a left-hand turn so in the early 1970s, that's when you start the, the acrylic column pieces. Before you start them, you, you go to New York. You have a show at MoMA in, in, in a third floor of the twice old built, you know, several MoMAs ago. And, and I think, you know, the, at that time in 1970, 45 years ago, the New York and L.A. art worlds were even more isolated from each other than they are now. Um, you hadn't met Robert Morris or Donald Judd or Richard Serra. They hadn't met you. The only guy who maybe had a foot in both places was Larry Bell, who at about that time. So in hindsight, you were working on things and ideas that were just a million miles away from what the New York art world was interested in. You told Matthew Sims that one of the things that you wanted to do when you were in New York in 1970 was meet those guys, meet Judd and meet Morris and meet Sarah. Was it curiosity, or was there something you wanted to materially get out of that or learn from that? No, it was curiosity. Met Judd first. I, I, I actually, one of the columns, I, I, Pace couldn't show him. They were too tall for the gallery. So he, he gave me the corner of his space on whatever street, and Spring Street, and I put a couple in the corner and uh, met Judd, who I, who, who I liked. I mean, he's... He had a, a gruff, Billy Goat gruff sort of thing about him, but he, he was a sweetheart, and he was also really interesting. He also, <laughs> I, to thank him, I, I uh, took him to lunch. I said, oh, I'd like to take you to lunch. 
So he took me over to Little Italy where they knew him in this place and everything, and it was great. And it was a great lunch. And then at the end of it, uh, I paid for it and it took every cent I had. I had to go borrow money from Pace to get back, to go back home. But, I, you know, it was like a, a very funny experience because Judd lived a, a very different way. I mean, he, and, and he was, the other thing was that he took me to a couple of, of sculpture mafia meetings, which were this, all those other guys, you know, and they were all, he said, Chad, he said, give him a break. You know, he's okay. You know, you know, he he was he was very nice to me. You know what I mean? He he uh, uh, he said, no, 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 no. You guys are jumping to conclusions here. You know. And uh, anyway, so uh, and the rest of those guys, it was the West Coast. You know, prove whether it was just a, a total dismissal. You know. But the thing was, the funny thing was, the sculptural mafia thing is that the thing would start out, you know, arguing back and forth somewhat intellectually about what they're doing. And, I, and the next thing, finally at the end of it, what they were doing is trying to figure out how to put the arm on some some little small town to do a project. <laughs> it disintegrated. It, it started at this level, but it disintegrated at a, at a pretty uninteresting uh, level of discussion. So, so much for them. You You later said that a bunch of the guys were tough and mean, but nobody was as tough and mean as, as Richard Serra. You said that he was, quote, one of the meanest people in the world. What did he do that was so mean? What 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 was the exchange between the two of you that that ended up in him being so mean? First of all, just start with the work where he splashed. What was it? Tar or, or oh, hot, 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 hot lead onto things. He was he was a, a, a critical. I mean, he was a tough he was very critical of things and everybody, and no bones, you know. I mean, he he went at you if he didn't, if you challenged him on anything. So and and then physically, he's working with huge pieces of steel and what have you. He, you know, he was he he had a rough edge on him, which is not this is not a critique. It just is. It was everything about him has this physicality to it and this combativeness and uh, it's part of what the work actually has that kind of quality to it I mean there's other qualities to it also but it's in your face you know there's no getting around it well seeing as you brought it up Uh, (laughs) yeah I brought it up but uh, you did a piece at MCA San Diego in 2007 that I think you also showed in New York at Pace big red yellow blue plexi panels uh, on the floor and then up above dropped from the ceiling is that a response or an engagement with Richard Serra's delineator? Zero. By the way, it went opposite. I did it in New York first and then did it. Then I did it out there, beginning to try and fill those big spaces, you know. No, actually, I'm not even quite sure where that piece came from. Uh, you know, I, I, I look at spaces, and that was a, a big empty room that I was down there on, on what was it, uh, some, some one of those galleries down there was a big kind of warehouse sort of gallery again it was uh, there was once in a while uh you know you look at a space this is one because it's in new york and it's pace and i'm uh, sort of obligated to do a show but i i look at uh, uh, it's a space that doesn't have any real personality you know i mean not, there's nothing to hang your hat on uh, nothing immediately in this space where we're here this curve i mean 
it ends up being a, this show ends up a lot being a critique on the architecture. I mean, you could read it that way. And that final move is to me just a no-brainer. I mean, just you square one wall and but this it, it, once in a while, not very often because it's not the kind of thing that I do, you know. I but because I, I'm having that little conversation with Arnie right now, I saw a space in L.A. that's just eccentric as hell. And I immediately coveted it. I have, I, young artists sometimes ask me, you know, I'm looking for a gallery, you know, where should I look? And I say, don't, don't look for a gallery, look for a place. I mean, a place that says, wow, you know, this is my work. You know, I'll really look good at it. But taking it further, that I can do something, because that space actually has property qualities that you can really resonate when you, you, you tune them up and they'll, you know, just they'll do something. So uh, this, that that was uh, one of the few times that I invented something. So New York, 1970, you're there in the late summer, early fall. The MoMA show opens October of 1970. Barnett Newman had just died when, when you were in New York. Newman died in, in early July 1970. So I, I, I have to imagine that that was that there was a lot of Newman in, in the air at that moment. Do you remember that, being there? It had nothing to do with any of that at all, but, uh, but I'll tell a couple of stories around it that are sort of fun. That Earlier than that, they did a show at Sao Paulo, all of us, a bunch of us. There was, it was uh, described as a major liner with seven tugs putting it into port, and, and which it was. Barnett Newman was a kind of a senior citizen, late in the years. The rest of them were fairly young. I mean, Don Judd, myself, uh, Larry Bell, uh, Larry Poons, I forget. Anyway, they did this show. And uh, actually, the show went to South America, and I had a, a one or two dot paintings in it. The first news I get, got back to me was that the, the dot paintings had been destroyed. People attacked them. They cut them with knives, they threw Coca-Cola on them, they, you know, it was just totally, uh, which for me was like, wow, I mean, that's a pretty hot response for for something that's, that's, uh, you know, uh, as yeah, gentle as, as that. So anyway, the, the, so the, uh, I thought that it was really nice that, 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 that Barnett Newman was, you know, for him, he, he went, None of us got to go to South America because he used up all the money <laughs> going back and forth. And so, but the show came back, and it came back to some place here in Washington. The National Collection of Fine Arts, the museum that is now the Smithsonian American Art Museum. It, it comes back, and uh, so I come to New York to install my, my, my contribution, which I have to bring a new painting. And also I'm finding out that they didn't insure it. So the works were just destroyed, period. You know, but a lot of work in, in those things, you know. So to have two of them destroyed was to take about 20% of the whole, I think, or maybe 10 uh, in the beginning. But anyway, so I come, and uh, I, the show is completely hung. And I'm not in the show, and Larry Bell's not in the show, and um, Don Judd's not in the show. Uh, I forget, there might have been another person, but somebody, this guy who was the curator there had hung the show and so I came and I, I asked him I said you know what 
seems a little odd. And he said, and I was not in the show. So he said, well, you know, uh, uh, well, you have a contract. Everybody had a contract. And it's not in your contract that I have to sh do this thing. And I said, I don't think so. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I didn't sign any contract. He said, oh, yes, you did. And he ran upstairs and he came down. I hadn't signed it. <laughs> and so he said, well, what do you want? I said, I want everybody back in the show. And anyway, so he says, oh, well, uh, but, but basically I, had, I was in a position to demand it. And so I said, put it, okay. So then he, gives, he, he, he put everybody back. And he gave me this room out of spite, kind of. It was a room, a small room with a, 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 a dado all the way around it of uh, marble with a, um, a little raised thing at the top. And so I hang the dot painting and it looks like it's skewered, you know, it's like a spit. And I'm thinking, oh man, you know. So I, 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 so I end up, what I did is I did a reverse trompe-loi. Okay, and I painted the wall uh, and, and made the whole thing go away. But the fun part of the story for me was I'm laying there underneath it, painting this thing out, and they bring a, a New York critic in. They say, oh, well, there's so-and-so, you know, and the guy sits down on the bench, and I'm talking to him, but I'm still painting away, and he's asking me questions and this and that, and they, finally he says, I have to catch a train back to New York, and, uh, you know, show me the work. I said, you've been, you've been looking at it the whole time. <laughs> it was Hilton Kramer. Yeah, I mean, that, I was hilarious. I mean, I, I think anyway. And this other guy suddenly—I mean—suddenly he loves what I'm doing. Not he loved the fact that I did this trompe l'oeil in reverse, where I made something disappear. You know, that was there. So it was actually a very, actually entertaining little uh, episode. Turning towards Scrim, the first time you were on the show, we talked about Scrim a great deal. So, so we're talking a little less about it today and I want to preface our conversation about the scrim piece here at the Hirshhorn and the the, the major thing you're doing for Chinati out in Marfa by saying that I'm going to try to avoid giving away either piece I think it really I, I think uh, I think people will come here and see it come to the Hirshhorn and see it and I don't want to tell them what's there you I mean the experience I had when I first saw it was I walked into an empty room nobody told me where it was or what it was, or anything. And figuring that out is a physically meaningful experience, and I don't want to take that away from anybody. Let's talk about the Chinati project first. It opens in July, July 23rd, as of, as of when we're taping here. The last time I saw what, we, saw what it was going to be was at the old hospital, the old falling apart, decrepit hospital. You started making drawings for the work in, in 2012, and now a, a new structure is being built for it. You started making drawings in 2002. It's 14 years on from 2002. Has the piece changed now that you have moved on from a different building into a purpose-built building? You know, yes and no. The thing is, first of all, you said it's been like 14 or 15 years. Uh, you know, doing these, doing these, doing these kind of projects. The thing that you, have, you realize, and there was getting the chance to do the garden or uh, what. Is there are not many there are there are difficult and there are not very many opportunities out there there really are it's a, for a young person who who I think could possibly 
try and approach the art world this way. It's not. It's a tough, tough road to hoe. I, I, one time I, I was asked to come to the Miami International Airport, and the, the director of the airport said, no, we don't need you, and the arts people had a, a budget and a mandate to enter in the airport. And so I was brought there originally to do something, but then there was nothing, and so everybody else quit. But I, you know, I'm not to be easily dissuaded. It was a great opportunity for me. Uh, even if I never got any made, it was a chance to exercise, play my game, you know what I mean? And so I spent, I don't know, I don't know how long, but a, a good period of time, like a year, year and a half or two, and just hung in there, you know, and made all kinds of plans and ideas. I, mean, I analyzed and re-felt, rethought. In a way, I took my PhD at the Miami International Airport, uh, knowing, knowing I was never going to get anything but done. But you don't, you know, to do this, you got to have an opportunity to do it. But the, but the thing is, is, uh, so the Miami International Airport, they, you know, I sat at the table with these guys when they debated all. The, it had, it was a disaster. They had an article in the paper, literally seven days a week, about all the problems at the airport in terms of getting lost and how you where to park your car and how to get in there, and so I basically analyzed the whole situation. Uh, looked at everything they'd done. For example, a real simple thing, and, and just the first critique, they said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, there have been a few bad decisions made here. <laughs> you know? and, and they said, well, what do you mean by that? I said, well, think you're, you're a guy in a rented car, and you're coming to the airport, and at this airport, you're coming down whatever the street is, or the road, and you look over to your left, and you're, oh, there's the airport. But but the but the sign says airport. It's to the right. So and you're already in a rented car. So you're on alert, and you're going to so you go go right, following the sign, and right there you put the you put the thing, the ceremony thing called flight, the piece of art. I said nobody in the world is going to be able to appreciate or even look at flight. You know this is I mean this is an absurd position to put this thing in. Because, uh, okay, now you this guy, he's going up this way, and there's five beautiful trees. This was, this was I said, these are incredibly beautiful trees. But for me, it's a problem because actually it hides the fact that the road finally turns and goes to the airport. Wrong place for the trees. Now you're, now you're on a, a straightaway. And for a moment, there's no decision you have to make. Opportunity, you know? And so I just went to the airport step by step by step by step, explaining how decisions were made and how they, in a sense, contradicted not only the aesthetic of it, but, but the, 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 how do people get from one place to another. Uh, there was great confusion about how, you know, which concourse you were supposed to go to. Uh, you were relying on A, B, C, that's it, you know. People lost their cars in the, in the garages. We, we had to go through the whole thing of how one finds a car and what do you use. Is color an item? Or if some people read things, is is it uh, associated to symbols or signs? In other words, how many, How do we? Anyway, it was fun. I, I was really, uh, and I come. I got actually pretty close to it. At one point, finally, right near the end, he had he had paid an art. He always used architects, of course, but the guy's name was Dick Judy, and he ran. He was the airport uh, association's president. Guy, smart guy, and he really did 
some he ran a on the plane side he ran a real efficient airport he had a lot of problems that were inherited the building was was built over a period of time so it didn't have any it had a very great difficulty in terms of how it read as a whole as a, and how one navigated that thing so i i was i finally he really started he asked these uh his good architect they had a lighting problem for the lower uh, entrance exits of uh, circle so the guy spent like literally like 9 months came up cost them x amount of dollars and they installed it and didn't work it was okay but didn't really work so then he got another guy to come and he guy this guy spent 3 months or 4 months and finally it didn't work really and so with so with smart ass me i said look man i will do this for you and i will do it in a week and i will do it for free i will give you a a lighting solution for that lower level which i did and he said at that point suddenly you got to take me serious <laughs> you know which i i never said finally demonstrated what i had been talking about for a long time unfortunate thing was it was at that moment in time the influx of the of cuban migration they basically had settled in a lot of people had settled in miami and so there was white flight everybody went to the suburbs as it were and left the town town to uh to to be you know really the cubans by the way are are terrific they have a real wonderful uh style of life and so it was a very interesting place uh, i thought they but they got the first cuban mayor first thing he did of course was to look at the economics of the whole city and every agency in the city was losing money except one which was the airport mm. this guy dick judy had never played the game with him he he floated all of his own bonds did all of his own construction you know and he was he and he was he was he making money it was a good successful working airport um a, a mess you know a mess i mean if you you could be in cleveland when you landed you had no idea where you were but anyway at that point the the mayor said the obvious thing from now on everything at the airport goes through me and they 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 Judy just said i quit you know and that was the end of my party because the second guy took his place looked at me at the table purposely and he said I'll concrete the whole fucking thing over. Let me wander back to to Marfa and and the Hershorn scrim. You know, one of the light in Marfa has a particular intense crazy high desert mountain intense quality to it whereas the light in the Hershorn galleries only enters through a doorway. How much when you do a scrim piece do you think about light and light quality and what to do with light i mean intensely I, I, when when i'm in the situation i'm looking for help i'm looking for, th- for the dynamics of how you enter where you enter from what kind of things have been going on before you got there what are the opportunities what is this thing how does it act or interact with the space before it and the space after it because i'm looking for things that are going to be they're going to resonate in that space that you're going to have a you know a, a feel for that they have a an edge on them that'll bring you you know bring you for a moment to have to be a first hand observer 
to pay attention in the simplest sense. So light, of course, is a major tool. Uh, how you move through it, where you come from, where you go to afterwards, so on and so forth. All of those are factors. Materials, how the materials are, obviously scale, all, all the things that we know that an artist essentially is supposed to be trained to, to be uh, in tune with, as it were. Like I said earlier about telling a young artist, don't look for a gallery, look for a space, someplace where, the, where your work you know, resonates or where there's an opportunity for your work, you know to do the kind of thing you do, which may have to do with whether it has windows or doesn't have windows, or whether there's traffic on the street, or whether uh, the time of day, which way the sun comes, is it blocked by a building, is it blocked all the time, is there intermittent light, and so on and so forth. These are all, this is what your, what your, this is your palette. And every bit of it, in a sense, has a, a potential. So when you're using Scrim, what do you have to do differently in a dark space like the Hirshhorn Galleries and in a super bright space like Chinati? What is the difference for you? It maybe works in one place and doesn't work in the other. <laughs> I'd like to have 10 different scrims. I mean, the scrim was, in a way, it's in the, being in the art world, it's a, it's, there are, most of the conditions are fairly well set. So the obvious things that you, the scrim, if I could have a, it's like somebody wanting to have a magic hook that just, so you make something happen and it floats in the air, you know. Uh, the scrim's a good tool. I wish I had more of them. Uh, so the thing has become a little bit over-identified with the scrim because it works. It works in a lot of places. And the difference between a dark room and a light room uh, depends on a, a lot of factors. I mean, there, it can't be without some light. So we have to deal with what the light is. Can you, if it's not daylight, then it's what can I deal with? Uh, the, the you know the what kind of incandescent light that you have in this place? Whether I can get it, or maybe lights uh, not an issue, and then maybe I can't use the scrim. You know, it's a it has some limitations, but it has the ability to affect a large space without hardly, in a sense, in any way being objective or having an object quality about it. Not very many things like that. Now, I used a thing outside, a, a fence material in some projects that I did, which has a small, yeah, small aperture, any color you want it, lasts forever, color does. It was called non-climbable fence, and originally was about being in prison, so because it had a small enough aperture that you can't climb it. You can't, you can't climb a regular old one. So that was its original orientation. But it turns out that you can cut it like butter, you know. <laughs> I mean, pretty much. So it's it's how these projects, you know, all these things factor in. And sometimes they're interesting. Sometimes they're information. Sometimes they, you know, you think you got an idea and you haven't got a neat idea. But uh, the scrim is is in a way, if you want to look at it from a, you know, from a, a, a critical point of view, I, I'm in a sense I've overused it, uh, you know. I, but it's, I'd like to have 10 scrims, you know. It still works for me. Robert Irwin, it's been a pleasure and an absolute joy to talk with you. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.